Hi there. Ben and I plotted out this episode after taking a road trip together in 2019. That feels like forever ago now after the descent into the darkest timeline 2020 has been so far. We also want to dedicate this episode to Alan Bellman. We first learned about Bellman's contributions to comic books and pop culture on this road trip. His legacy is one that we are happy to say will endure forever in a place that could not be more fitting. Bellman passed away on March 9th. He was 95. Rest in peace, good sir. It was a joy to learn more about you from one of your friends who, just from what we experience, we know loved you and admired you very much. Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. There's a fair number of nationally recognized museums in the Midwest. There's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. The Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. The Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia is in Big Rapids, Michigan. The Studebaker National Museum is in South Bend, Indiana. Not too far from the subject of today's episode. Today's episode is about one museum. Actually, the only museum in the country, if not the world, dedicated entirely to superheroes. The Hall of Heroes in Elkhart, Indiana. We were surprised too. So before we get into anything about this place, let me just say I love that title. The Hall of Justice from classic DC stories goes back to the 70s Super Friends cartoons. As we're getting started, I also want to say thank you to Todd Espeland, who first told me about the Hall of Heroes. I filed it away in my memory bank, didn't really look into it at the time for whatever reason, and then I started seeing stories popping up about a move to a new location. And that's where our journey starts. So you were serious about this whole dividing this episode into chapters thing. Yes, I was. All right. I'm here for it. Chapter one. And on this rock, I will build my church. Cassopolis Street, which in itself sounds like a city you could find somewhere in superhero comics, is right off a toll road in Elkhart. You drive down a little ways and... Then your destination will be on the right. There it is. So on this trip to the Hall of Heroes, I was the driver and Caleb navigated. Atomic batteries to power, turbines to speed. Roger, ready to move out. And to say we were excited would be an understatement. We arrived earlier than we expected and realized that perhaps we weren't the only ones thinking of our car as the Batmobile. Another car pulled up. Around the license plate, there was a decal that said, na 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 and then had the Batman symbol. The founder and director of the Hall of Heroes, Alan Stewart, had arrived. We're going to take events a little out of order at some points to give extra context. We'd seen pictures of Alan before in the media coverage for the museum's move. The Cassopolis Street location got the museum closer to the toll road exit, and we knew the museum's new location would have more space for the exhibits. 
Alan greeted us, opened the front door, and got the museum ready for visitors, turned on the lights as well as the classic arcade games lining one corner of the room, and our jaws hit the floor. Basic layout here. The first things in front of us were a gift shop and counter with glass cases where whoever was working the museum, in this case Alan, could greet visitors. We'll have more on the gift shop later. You bought a t-shirt and some magnets. As one does. And you're wearing the t-shirt right now. As one does. The Hall of Heroes also has a guest book, which is really cool. Visitors can sign in and write where they came from. There were plenty of visitors from around Indiana, others who made the trip from far greater distances than us. That was partially because of how our visit timed out. The Hall of Heroes had just had their annual Comic Con. And while I can't remember if all of these guys had their names in the guest book, we were entering the hallowed hall after a visit from, among others, John Wesley Shipp. From The Flash. Jackson Bostwick. From Captain Marvel, and to clarify, the DC Captain Marvel that was called Shazam for the recent film. And Alan Bellman, who among his other contributions drew the artwork for Captain America number one. He gave us the indelible image of Captain America punching Hitler in the face. It's also why most pictures of Bellman we found in the Hall of Heroes social media page had him extending the right fist to emulate the cover. Alan Stewart told us stories about all of these guys, but we should take this time to tell you about him. He actually wrote and printed a comic book that's available for visitors like us to learn more about the museum. Like many comic book fans, his interest in the medium started young, buying comics at flea markets and spinning racks at the store. This interest continued through high school and eventually Alan joined the military. He points out in the epic story of the Hall of Heroes that this was right around when the 89 Batman film came out. With the training and physique he got from serving, Alan actually auditioned for the part of Robin and made it to the final five, before the part eventually went to Chris O'Donnell. On one hand, he missed out on the opportunity to play Robin in what became Batman Forever, though also wasn't in Batman and Robin either, so there's your silver lining. After this, Alan opened up a comic store and held contests for up-and-coming comic book creators who found their way to DC and Marvel. He began building up a collection of memorabilia, and eventually there was a demand for the collection to be displayed. Alan hired the first contractor who seemed the most excited about the concept of building a structure that resembled the Hall of Justice headquarters. The doors opened in May of 2007, and one of Alan's friends donated a copy of Captain America No. 1 from 1941. It's also worth noting here that as Alan told us, that's a book that's a little hard to come by. You will only see it here and the Library of Congress. The museum continued to grow, acquiring more notoriety and exhibits until moving to a new location became necessary, and the museum popped up on our radar. The exhibit that inspired the name of this chapter is dedicated to the War Comics character Sergeant Rock. Rock was based off of a hero from the Second World War, in Alan's words, a hillbilly from West Virginia who was only a little over five feet tall, so the enemy tended to aim too high and miss him a lot. The inspiration for Sergeant Rock was Sam Stewart, Alan Stewart's grandfather. Comic books are in his blood. Chapter 2. Preservation by the Numbers Comic books are also everywhere in the Hall of Heroes. Everything we've covered so far doesn't tell you a whole lot about how the museum is laid out. The space is an explosion of color, with superhero memorabilia covering most walls and packing display cases. But, in the middle of the museum, are two lines of enormous black cabinets. Inside... The middle is all the comic book collection being preserved, which is 65,000 comic books. So Holy. yeah, these are, yeah, it's fourth largest comic book collection in the world. We're number one largest memorabilia collection in the world. 65,000 comic books. And not a single one preserved in the archive is a duplicate. Whenever the museum receives a donation of a book that they already have, the two are compared and the inferior book is placed in the gift shop. There's some rare finds in the Hall of Heroes gift shop to be sure, but the ones that are displayed? There's so many first appearances. Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man from the 60s, 
or Ra's al Ghul's first appearance in the 70s, and Deadpool's in the 80s. The Hall of Heroes also has the first appearance of Wonder Woman and Robin, which you're looking at issues from the 40s value between five and six figures. Alan also pointed out the first appearance of the Incredible Hulk. He looked different. And then, you know, first Hulk, it's interesting because he was gray, and then they turned him green in issue two, and it was due to a uh, inking problem, coloring issue, you know, with the inks and stuff. That's why they went from gray to green. Because the gray kind of, like, washed out and everything, so mm. then they would add some color to him. Purple was one of the other possible choices. We almost had Barney on steroids. <laughs> I think green was the right choice. I love that. As we heard, and of course, there's Captain America number one. And we're back to Alan Bellman. When Caleb and I visited the museum, Bellman was still with us. Alan Stewart referred to him as the last man standing from the Golden Age. Now his legacy is in the Hall of Heroes, alongside many of the contributions from Stan Lee. Bellman even donated handwritten letters from Lee to the Hall. And now that he has passed, there really isn't a better place for artifacts from him to be shared with fans around the world. Alan Bellman was clearly someone who had not just inspired Alan Stewart, but was also a dear friend. And if listening to Storytelling Breakdown is the first time you have heard Alan Bellman's name, I'm thrilled that we can share his story with you as it was shared with us. We mentioned John Wesley Shipp and Jackson Bostwick earlier, and it's clear these guys had as much of a blast at the museum as we did. Bostwick apparently strongly prefers the character to be called Captain Marvel, as he was when Bostwick played him in the 70s. We can't get too far away from Captain America number one, because you would think that John Wesley Shipp would have a stronger connection to the Flash memorabilia, and he did. But Alan told us that Ship also asked if he could just hold the copy of Captain America number one displayed at the museum. The historical significance of that issue was huge, and it's just really cool that Ship also appreciated what he was seeing and got to touch it. It was amazing to hear the closeness these guys feel with their work and the universes their characters inhabit. DC or Marvel? It doesn't matter. It's all there, and it's just beyond comprehension. Ben and I know that as we try to describe our experience of this museum to you. We cannot fully capture all of the emotions the experience brought about for us. We could not stop smiling, and there's too many stories to break down. But we're going to keep trying. Just on the merits of the comic books alone and the exhibits surrounding them, there's more than we can cover. But then there's... Chapter 3. Comic Books on the Big and Small Screens. Where we talk about all the props and costumes that have found their way to the museum. Not all. No, definitely not all. Let's not move too far off topic. Captain America and John Wesley Ship. There is a Hermes-style flash helmet in the hall that now bears Ship's signature after he visited the museum. A superhero museum would feel incomplete without a film-used version of Captain America's shield, and the hall has one from Captain America First Avenger, signed by many of the people involved in the production of the film. The display also has pictures showing all of the different people as they sign the vibranium frisbee. That might be the coolest prop in the museum if you're a Marvel fan. It definitely is if you're a Captain America fan. For those of us who grew up primarily on DC, and more specifically Batman, there's nothing quite like seeing one of Adam West's costumes. I have to thank Caleb here. When we visited, I was holding the audio recorder and wearing the headset, but that meant you were on picture duty. So there's a picture of me next to that suit. I was losing my mind in the Batman exhibit. There were Lego displays, toys, and statues of all kinds. There's also statues and figures of significance in pretty much every display at the hall. Of course, of the rare and or original variety. Picture one of those giant booths at the Comic-Con that sells statues. Then take all of the statues out of the boxes and multiply what you're picturing by a hundred, and that sense of awe you're getting might come close to what we experienced. The Batman exhibit also had shark-repellent bat spray, and autographs from so many actors and actresses who have touched the world of Batman. 
There is a picture of the four most famous villains of Batman 66 signed by Frank Gorshin, Burgess Meredith, Cesar Romero, and Lee Merriweather. The museum also had individual signed pictures for each of the three Catwomen as well. Not every artifact can be a signed picture of Julie Newmar in costume. The Batman exhibit also had one of the top ten dirtiest toys ever made. There is a poorly thought out squirt gun in the exhibit that is basically designed to look like Batman bent forward so his whole body is the gun. Meaning the trigger is... Moving on. Back to Marvel and movie props. There's two artifacts in the museum that you can pay to sit on or lay on to get your picture taken. They have Ghost Rider's bike and Tony Stark's blue 64 Shelby Cobra. Iron Man started it all, now that we look back at what the MCU became. The car almost feels like it was present at the Big Bane. It's also as wrecked as it was in the movie, so you can lie down where Iron Man crashed down onto it. It's a thing of beauty. I think we both felt that way when we saw a prop from the 1978 Superman film. It's a wooden model designed to look like Christopher Reeve in costume. We're a couple decades from computer-based effects, so this was used to create shots of Superman flying in the movie, with the tagline, You'll believe a man can fly. The Hall of Heroes is also home to what could be considered the first action figure. It's large and probably more accurately qualifies as a wooden doll. But it's clearly Superman, and it's from 1940. The oldest autograph in the museum is also from the Man of Steel. It's a signed picture of Kirk Allen in the cape and tights, and he first played Superman in 1948. There were so many autographs. Between items purchased or donated, or signed after the fact, we're going to miss most of them. One that we should highlight here is Ryan Reynolds. His signature is on two autograph pictures. One is of Deadpool, and the other is Green Lantern. According to Alan, getting the Deadpool picture was twice as expensive as the Green Lantern one. Which makes sense. Love the character, but the movie is a garbage fire. (laughs) Each picture is also next to a prop from the films, and they are exactly the props you'd want to see displayed. A Green Lantern ring and Deadpool's mask. It was a little weird seeing the prop on that one because the actual mask is cloth with little dots on it for motion capture. They had to do it that way because if the mask was actually leather, there was no way audiences would see all of the different expressions Reynolds is able to pull off with the character. You could teach an entire class on cinema in the Hall of Heroes. One of the props in the Spider-Man section was a Sandman prop from Spider-Man 3. Obviously, in the film's final act, Sandman is several stories tall in some parts. The prop was used as the basis for animating that would be better measured in inches, not stories. While we're on the subject of pre-MCU Marvel movies that missed the mark a little bit, Ben Affleck's cane and glasses from the 2003 Daredevil film. Ben, you asked Alan if they'd be able to add the Charlie Cox version, which is fair given the popularity of the Netflix shows. It turns out the move for the Hall of Heroes happened at the same time as those props were auctioned off, so at least that opportunity was missed. Never is a long time. Exactly. And when you stop and think about how much building a collection like this involves having the connections and the right timing, those odds have been in the museum's favor a lot. There's a couple more items I want to just throw in here again in case you weren't already moving experiencing the Hall of Heroes to the top of your bucket list. Comics have a complicated history. There's a glass case shaped differently from the others that displays Frederick Wortham's seduction of the innocent. There's always something that serves as a boogeyman for society, and comics had their turn. The book is displayed with some of the horror comic books that likely inspired Wortham. But it's ironic to see his work displayed in a museum dedicated to a medium he attempted to eradicate. There's plenty of space for villains in the Hall of Heroes. More on that in a minute. We kind of stopped talking at the beginning about how the museum is laid out because I wanted to save some of the biggest items in the museum for the end. They aren't old, but they are the perfect way to show just how iconic the characters are. The museum has statues. Life-size statues. Of seven characters. They've got Spider-Man, Captain America, and Iron Man on the Marvel side. Plus the Incredible Hulk. Again, life-size. Thank you again for getting a picture of me with it for scale. Yeah, he's only got you by roughly three feet and a few hundred pounds. 
And on the DC side, there's statues of the Trinity, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Where did they get these statues? Hollywood movie premieres. So the actors themselves were once in the vicinity of these statues, and then they were donated and shipped... In the Hulk's case, in pieces. ...to the Hall of Heroes. As far as donations go, that's a crazy tax write-off. Who doesn't dream of the day when they can write off a life-size statue of the Incredible Hulk? And that brings us to Chapter 4, The Future. When we left the Hall of Heroes, we knew we wanted to shout from the rooftops about it. Our season finale for the first season of Storytelling Breakdown is that rooftop. The museum has done so many amazing things already. If you haven't been to see the museum lately, they've added more exhibits since our visit in 2019. If you haven't been there ever, and you've listened this far, obviously we want you to find your way there when circumstances are right for you to make the trip. While the pandemic has made events difficult, the Hall of Heroes hosts an annual Comic-Con, and each Halloween, Alan dons his Joker costume, and the museum becomes the Hall of Villains. Families and kids who come to the museum for that event can help rescue Batman. Alan also told us about an app the museum is working on for visitor tours. It was in the process of being completed right around when we recorded this episode. For our visit, we had the luxury of Alan guiding us from exhibit to exhibit. We learned so much that we might have missed if it was just us moving from piece to piece in the collection. There's so much to process. For developing innovative ways to share the museum's story, and just because the Hall of Heroes supports so much of what we know and love, please support it if you are able. More information can be found at hallofheroesmuseum.com. And that's the last breakdown. Thank you for listening and supporting us. You can find more information about this podcast, our team, and our plans for the future of Storytelling Breakdown at storytellingbreakdown.com. Our next guest is once again someone whose work you've heard in every episode of this podcast. Last episode, we heard from Kurt Remke, who composed our theme music. Now we're going to hear from John Dawkins, the founder of Wayne Shout Productions. He and I had three years of overlap while we both studied music technology at the University of St. Francis. This podcast is being distributed, and you are hearing it now, because of John's hard work. Though this next spotlight gains some added context, thanks to a family vacation. Here's John. My friends know me as a pop culture nut. I'm all about Star Wars, Harry Potter, Dune. I read sci-fi voraciously, but truth be told, and in contrast to the two dozen or so Star Wars shirts I own, it's my love of Kermit the Frog and his alter ego Jim Henson that's one of the most defining aspects of how I see myself. So much so that I've been doing various Muppet impressions since I was 10. Impressions! Down, animal! <laughs> Sorry. And I even wore Kermit cufflinks at my wedding. The Muppets under Henson represented bad jokes, slapstick mayhem, plot lines where nothing is going according to plan, but all presented with a series of beautiful ideas like equality, cultural expression, kindness, humor, peace, friendship, and growing up. So I am a movie nut and a history nut, and I love museums. Over the years, I've seen museum exhibits for Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. The worst piece I've seen is a badly deteriorated Tribble that looked like something unclogged from a shower drain. The most jaw-dropping thing I've seen has to be the mannequin of Sean Bean from Lord of the Rings in an elvish canoe. The 
body was so lifelike, the only way I could visually confirm it was a fake was the lack of hair on its hands. Suffice it to say, it was both cool and creepy. All these exhibits were very exciting for me. I'm a behind-the-scenes junkie. I've studied filmmaking and post-production. But I view these exhibits with an emotional detachment. With the possible exception of seeing the actual ILM model of the Millennium Falcon, none of them created a visceral emotional response in me. Until recently. Last fall, I traveled with my wife and four-year-old daughter to Atlanta, Georgia. We went down to see some friends of ours and met their new baby. We had never been to Atlanta, and we were interested in seeing the sights. First of all, I thoroughly recommend the Georgia Aquarium. It's an expensive tourist trap, but the whale sharks are absolutely breathtaking. Our story, however, takes place in a more low-key setting. The Center for Puppetry Arts is a very small museum in Atlanta, and I can attest that on a Sunday morning it's a pretty sleepy little place too, even before COVID-19. Now, what on earth is it about a tiny museum dedicated to puppets, of all things, that would inspire me to write a blog and a podcast monologue about it? It's very simple. It houses an enormous collection dedicated to the Muppets and the career of one particular hero of mine, Jim Henson. The museum has three galleries. As you walk in past the ticket counter, you see a door for a special exhibit off to the side. I'll get to that in a minute. Suffice to say, the sign by the door had me twitching in anticipation. Directly ahead were the entrances to the two main galleries. Veer right, and you see the historical puppets of the world. It's a nice exhibit. They have antique stick puppets, Punch and Judy, Gumby, if anyone past my parents' generation remembers Gumby, fantastically complex Japanese shadow puppets, and ornate Chinese marionettes. And from a pop culture podcast perspective, that gallery is notable because, and this is the reason I discovered the museum in the first place, it's now the permanent home of Tom Servo and Crow, the bots from Mystery Science Theater 3000. I am a fan. And for Tim Burton fanatics, there were the stop-motion figures from The Corpse Bride in the next case over. That was the right-hand gallery. We were first drawn to the left, where a huge, smiling picture of Jim Henson was blessing our presence. And that, my friends, is where I steadily started losing all sense of my adulthood. The first thing you see walking around the corner is Rolf the dog in a glass case. There are so many levels of awesome here. He's one of the oldest Muppets, originally appearing in Purina dog food commercials and on the Jimmy Dean show. My first impression was that he was only half there. Rolf only looks like half a puppet because his base is wide enough for two performers. Rolf takes three hands to play piano. If you're paying attention, Rolf is holding a piece of sheet music, and this is a cool bit of trivia. It's the music for Lydia the Tattooed Lady, which is a song that Kermit sings in the first season of The Muppet Show, with, of course, Rolf on piano and Animal playing drums. After that, there were some interesting curios. There was Jim Henson's desk, complete with a cool frog lamp, several awards, and knickknacks. That gave way to a stroll through a Muppet build shop with the animatronic dog from The Storyteller, and workbenches scattered with Muppet eyes and random bits of foam and feathers. And then I crossed to the next room, and without warning, I was six years old again. There was Bert and Ernie, like they'd stepped out of the TV. Bert with his bottle cap collection and Ernie grinning like he was about to tell a corny joke. Ah, uh, Ernie, what's this fly doing in my guacamole? Oh, uh, he's doing the hundred meters, Bert. <laughs> From there I turned around and nearly lost the remainder of my composure. There he stood, eight feet of yellow, turkey-feathered glory, and an expression of kindness that shouldn't be possible in a foam beak. Only a complete sociopath could meet Big Bird face to face, or face to chest, and not feel a little bit giddy. 
he was actually there with Little Bird. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a Little Bird. My daughter and I just both flipped out. In the rest of the Sesame Street room was a riot of colorful pictures and backgrounds and featured more old friends, Grover, Cookie Monster, Oscar, Hoots the Owl. Elmo and some of the other characters were off exhibit. They rotate about twice a year. Means I have to go back someday. Moving on, there was an interactive room for the kids where they could put on a puppet show in front of fake cameras. And then you come to the Muppet Show room. And that's where my head lives. Dr. Teeth was there with his psychedelic threads, the fringe vest and the pink feathered top hat and gold tooth, looking like George Clinton had a love child with Elton John. Link Hogthrob and Dr. Strangepork from Pigs in Space were there, looking a little dingy with age, but with wonderfully detailed costumes. Miss Piggy was off to the side in jungle garb from Muppet Treasure Island. Underrated movie, by the way. Totally owned by Tim Curry. And there was a mismatch of minor characters all looking to the center of the room where sitting in a director's chair and brandishing a megaphone is my froggy hero. It wasn't actually a working Kermit. It was a wireframe posable puppet for photo shoots, but he looked perfect. And at this point, I've just checked out. My brain has left the building. I was nearly in tears, and I had no idea I would feel that way when I walked in there. The rest of this exhibit was a happy blur. There were all the fraggles, puppets made for a series of fast food commercials, denizens of the labyrinth, and a full-size Gartham costume, one of the giant beetle warriors from the Dark Crystal. We then perused the other gallery. I posed for a few pictures with my favorite movie heckling robots, and then we headed to the special exhibit. Remember I mentioned the special exhibit? A whole collection of artifacts from Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. Wow. This movie scared me as a kid. It was a crazy concept. They created a new world using puppets that were so lifelike they could give you nightmares. The exhibit had some eye-popping attractions. There was the scribe of the mystics, the good half of the all-wise Urskex. They had Skek-Ung, the Skeksis general, Augra, the podlings, and the hero of the film, Jen the Gelfling. That puppet in particular is in beautiful condition after 38 years. The Gelflings were some of the hardest puppets the Henson shop ever had to build because their heads are so small and they had to get the animatronics in there and still have room for a hand. They also had an impressive array of creatures, animatronic parts, and design sketches from the film. The whole thing was just an amazing preservation of a beautiful piece of movie history. So, the long and the short is that this little museum left me with something I've rarely experienced in my adult life. The sense that my childhood has not really been left behind. It's right there, ready to be triggered. No matter how jaded and old and curmudgeonly you get, and I have been called a curmudgeon, you can find the way back to a time of wonder and delight. Our visit wrapped up with a little craft workshop where my daughter got to make her own puppet and a visit to the tiny gift shop, but ultimately I left the Center for Puppetry Arts of Atlanta, Georgia with two things. A souvenir hat, which I'm wearing right now, and a profound sense that I had spent the day with my oldest and dearest friends. Thank you, Ben and Caleb, for having me on your show, and thank you both for your amazing contribution to WayneShout.com. We made it! Thank you for listening to our season finale. We've wrapped up audio recording, and I'm sure there will be more people to thank as we get everything online. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a producer. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you for sharing your museum experience with us, John. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
from WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.